Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello and welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. My name is Paul Tarsi and on this month's show we'll have Paul Jern bring us the latest news about new race dates announced for 2021. Some rather worrying news if you're UK based and intend to race in Europe this year. And we'll take a look at the sad January day in 1958 when Britain's first Formula One world champion Mike Hawthorne died, not in a race, but in a nondescript bypass accident in Surrey. Jim Roller will be concluding his fascinating two-part look at the beautiful Watkins Glen circuit, which is just a couple of miles from where he grew up. But before all that, let's hear the latest news. Paul, welcome. Hello. Do you Are you beginning to get a feeling that... The historic racing industry is starting to get positive about 2021 yet? I, I think if you'd asked me that question last week, I'd have possibly said yes. I think there's now a few little things starting to come out of the woodwork. You can uh, no longer just pop your, your race car on a trailer and head off into Europe to go racing. Motorsport UK have advised that an ATA carnet will be required to temporarily move motorsport vehicles across any kind of border. And that's um, basically just you getting the permission to move it and that's going to be a level of administration and cost that uh, didn't exist before it's a, a carnet is essentially an international customs document that operates like a passport for your goods and uh, it, unfortunately it would appear that a racing car counts as goods in this case mm-hmm. so it allows you to temporarily take that goods into countries that are part of the ata system and that's the eu and 40 additional countries and avoid you having to pay unnecessary taxes or duties. So that's something you're avoiding paying, but like everything in life, it comes with a cost. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, this the car they will can be operate for up to 12 months, but uh, that's just really covering your car. And essentially it's a way of ensuring that you're not taking it out there and selling it and trying to avoid the taxes and duties linked onto that. You have to get this carnet in advance of your travel and there's basically two parts of it. One is there's the uh, the actual paperwork itself, for which there is an arrangement fee. And then there's a wonderful thing called the premium, of which more in a moment. Fortunately, on the, on the paperwork, Motorsport UK have arranged a deal with, uh, of all people, Greater Birmingham Chamber of Commerce for a price fixed price of uh, £240 plus VAT for the paperwork for their members. And uh, that's actually cheaper than the 330 that the non-members would pay the uh, Great but Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. I just love the fact that it's the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. obviously there's one in Birmingham that's not so great. So it's, uh, but where it, where it gets interesting is this premium, and that's also where things get a little more complex and potentially expensive. There's two ways of paying the premium, and one of them is essentially a refundable deposit of 40% of your vehicle's value. So if you've got a historic vehicle that's, let's just pick a nice round figure, worth a million pounds, and there's quite a few out of them there that are these days, you have to put up basically a deposit of 400,000 pounds to cover it. 
So that's that's one option. And basically, I'm thinking not a lot of people are going to go down that route. So the alternative is actually then, so a non-refundable, essentially taking out insurance for that value. And that's going to cost a little. The estimation from Motorsport UK is that if you've got a car worth £100,000 on 40% of the value, that insurance, that premium to cover the uh, the insurance to cover the premium is going to cost you £624 for the 12 months. But uh, those costs aren't actually a sliding scale. So sort of £50,000 car wouldn't cost half or £100,000, etc., etc. So this is really potentially going to become quite a big issue and an expense and another level of organisation for anyone wanting to cross the channel in either direction, which is going to be interesting. So um, there's far more information on the Motorsport UK website if this does affect you. And I think we're going to discover more of the implications for the movement of vehicles over the coming months. But, uh, you know, I know that some UK preparers are already concerned, and I've seen this on social media, that uh, any European customers might want to keep their cars the other side of the channel from now on. While, uh, you know, the admins and cost for someone who's maybe looking to uh, take that classic car and do a race on the continent or a rally on the continent might mean that they're just deterred from doing that as a one-off. So uh, we may see far less cars taking these cross-channel trips. And um, you think that while the high-profile cars will continue, it's going to be interesting to see if we're still going to see the big grids we've seen at events such as maybe Goodwood or the Silverstone Classic, where they do attract major entries from the continent. And then, of course, going the other way, the Le Mans Classic, for example. What about the uh, the programme for events in the UK and in Europe uh, for, uh, for the forthcoming year? Oh, that's quite interesting because at the same meeting for, in the FIA's Historic Motorsport Commission that um, Paolo Cantarella retired, they actually appointed John Naylor, who's head of Irish Motorsport, to take over. And almost his first announcement there was that we are seeing some FIA dates. So, for example, the FIA European Historic Rally Championship has announced nine rounds and the FIA Historic Hill Club Championship, sadly two events that don't visit the UK, or maybe that's actually more convenient these days. Um, of announcement, but they've also got a little proviso in the rules which actually says that if there is another widespread COVID-19 disruption, they can declare their championships after just four rounds. So people are starting to give themselves the flexibility to reflect to uh, you know, potentially rapidly changing situations. And again, for anyone who is affected by there were also changes announced to the Appendix K regulations regarding rollover protection for non-homologated cars and uh, it always amuses me permitted livery for homologated vehicles and also camshafts for certain touring cars so uh, yeah if you've been on the limit with your engine it might be worth again visiting the FIA's website and getting those updated regulations uh, in the UK we've seen uh, quick classic racing it's certainly been one of the success stories of recent seasons with some fantastic grids announcing uh, all five of their series in action for up to 10 meetings Again, now, interestingly, they're mostly in the UK, but they have a, they are looking for a trip to uh, Estoril in Portugal and possibly an outing at Jerez in Spain. So it's going to be interesting to see what numbers they can manage to take abroad. And uh, very it, yeah, that's, that's going to be interesting because maybe with a change like this, Equipe will turn around and say, well, do you know what? We're not going to do this. No, no, but, you know, typically there's been quite a few championships who have finished off with a final round late in the year at somewhere that's still warm in that time of year. So... Uh, yeah, you know, a little bit of a culture shift going on. And uh, a name close to both our hearts, Amok Racing, unfortunately, announced the 2021 schedule. And uh, they had quite a hard time in 2020, only managing to run their St. John Horsefall meeting, which was uh, you know, fantastic because that's a meeting that's been running since uh, 1950, in the year 1950s. 
But uh, they've announced their partnership with the BRSEC, which sees uh, the BRSEC looking after their various series and control and running the meetings and everything for them. And that's uh, quite a nice link because both organisations trace their roots right back to the very pre-war period when the uh, the BRSCC went under the name the Half Litre Club. <laughs> I love that as a name. It's sort of, you are limiting yourself slightly, which is, I think, that was 1947, and they lasted till 1954 when they felt they're, uh, they should, they adopted their current name. And uh, AMOC run their first St John Horsfall meeting back in uh, 1950. That's the positive. As a slight note of why I said mentioned earlier on, a level of concern is in the last few days, the BRSEC have cancelled two meetings that they had set for March. So we're already seeing those very, very early meetings potentially under threat from the lockdowns and everything that we've actually got going on in the UK and the tier system. Yeah, and that's that's not going to get um, that's not going to get better, is it? I think not. And I also think that quite a lot of people seem to have learnt a lesson from last year. And I think cancellations are going to be made earlier rather than later. You know, we had a few times last year when people cut it very close to the bone before uh, saying, OK, we can't do this. And I think certainly if they're announcing now that they can't run at Alton Park and Silverstone on March the 20th, then they're looking ahead and really trying to actually let people have a bit of a warning of what's what's going on. Mm, yeah, yeah. Simply, um, we mentioned sorry, sorry, Paul, we mentioned last time that the Retromobile ex- Exhibition in Paris, and uh, we've been fortunate enough to walk around there. And I, th- I think you'll agree, Paul, it is quite a sight to see an amazing exhibition. Definitely, definitely, it's uh, it's a high spot of those uh, those cold winter months. Isn't it? It, it is. Plus, you get to into Paris, so things could be worse. So the, that shows now been put back to later in the year. But uh, the auction that goes along with it from Arcurial are uh, is still looking to happen. And they're offering up 42 lots on February the 5th. And I just really wanted to mention this because, uh, you know, to me, the standout car there is uh, they're actually selling the Matra MS670 that won Le Mans in 1972 uh, with Henri Pescarolo and Graham Hill. Now, you'll, 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 you'll well remember, Paul, if I don't know, I'm not uh, casting aspersions on your advanced years here. Those, uh, <laughs> those lovely powder blue cars, but they had that fantastic sounding 3-litre V12. And let's uh, just hope whoever the new owner for those cars actually lets them off the leash and we actually get to see them racing somewhere. And um, estimates reckon somewhere between 4 million to 7.5 million euros. So uh, I'm off to rummage down the back of the sofa and we'll see what we can find, yeah? <laughs> but also crossing the block is a section of seven Group B rally cars from the 1980s. And it's a fantastic selection. There's an Audi Sport Quattro S1, a Lancia 037, Ford RS200, a Metro 604, and even a Peugeot 206 T16. And uh, so if you fancy an instant rally car collection, then that re- those really are the lots for you. And uh, as I say, the full listing is on the Articurial website, so do track that one down. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. 62 years ago this month, um, Britain was celebrating the crowning of her first ever Formula One world champion, uh, Mike Hawthorne when an unexplained accident on the A3 Guildford bypass in Surrey snuffed out his life. And I've been doing a bit of investigating to try and explain just what happened on that day. They called him the gay cavalier of motor racing, but gaiety ended for Mike Hawthorne. Life ended too. On the Guildford bypass, he skidded, bumped a lorry, careered onto the verge, hit a tree. It was all over. At 29, world famous, he met death. There's been lots of conspiracy theories, lots of um, unsupported claims over the years about 
just why Mike Hawthorne died that day. Uh, but yeah, he was, if I go back, he was being fated by the great and the good on the 19th of January. Uh, he'd, he'd been, being crowned as world champion at the end of 1958 and in 1959 John Michael Hawthorne as he was was a guest of honor at the National Sporting Club dinner which is where he was presented <laughs> somewhat incongruously I would have to say with uh, a cocktail cabinet a fully stocked cocktail cabinet I must say how delighted I am this great honor you accord me this evening and especially with this wonderful presentation of the cocktail cabinet. I'm afraid it's, it's completely ruined my chances of getting a 50% reduction with this Swedish insurance firm. <laughs> I see there was a little bit in the paper the other day about Sterling would be able to get it, and I wouldn't because I like my beer. Thank goodness they left the whiskey out and the rest. <laughs> I've had eight years of racing. In eight years, I got to the top. So I decided, now's the time. Thank you all very, very much indeed for coming along, be so patient to listen to me. And I hope one day some of you will come along and join me and we'll empty that lot. Thank you very much. Now, Hawthorne was, by modern standards, um, let's say an interesting character. Uh, he was an only child. He was doted upon by his parents and enjoyed a privileged upbringing. He was sent to Ardingly College in Sussex, which is uh, a posh old boys boarding school. And that I suppose by the standards of 21st century, that he would be probably described as boorish. Um, he demonstrated all those traits of xenophobia and chauvinism which were just around in those days and it was um i mean besides so many other things he was he always referred to sterling moss behind Stirl's back as moses because it was his way of highlighting sterling's um jewish ancestry and moss i think probably was not not immune to that kind of thing, but nonetheless, it happened quite a lot. And he was very much more generous when he talked about Mike many years later. Of course I had a fierce rivalry, of course I did. He was driving a damn Ferrari when I was driving a Van Wall. You know, we wanted to beat him and he wanted to beat me. I mean, simple as that. In reality, you were really either a Hawthorne fan or a Moss fan. I mean, here's Mike, he's six foot something blonde, beer drinking, you know, and all that. And, and I'm sort of five foot six and eight with thick socks. We got along very well. Uh, people couldn't believe that. They always thought because we were, we were fighting like hell on the track uh, that, uh, you know, that we liked that person. It wasn't a fact. I interviewed a lifelong Farnham resident uh, a few years ago, and she recalled seeing Hawthorne pour a pint of beer over a fan who had the temerity to ask for an autograph when in the local pub. And that simply this chap had gone up and said, excuse me, Mr. Hawthorne, could you sign this for me? And he said, and here's something else to remember me by, and poured the, uh, poured the pint of beer over his head. You can imagine 
what would happen in modern times because somebody would be there with their phone and you know, it would be all over Instagram or Facebook in two minutes. And be virtually career ending, you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, and certainly people are much better trained, but also better mannered, I think, now. Um, yeah, I mean, they they were different times. The uh, the war had only recently been over. I say recently, you know, fifteen years. But um, and so all that all that nationalism and mistrust of foreigners and all those things was still very rife, and that you know Britain had spent years in combat with other Europeans, and hence the memories were still in sharp focus. Uh, if you think of all those photographs of the, the the Spitfire pilots lounging around ready, ready for the, the scramble bell, Mike Hawthorne would fit in with that perfectly. Tall, blonde hair, smoking a pipe, um, scarf around his neck, you know, that, that he was that sort of person. But there was another side to him as well, because what certainly wasn't known at the time was that he had been diagnosed with kidney disease. And at the time of his death, it was getting worse and worse week by week. And let's face it, in the 1950s, there were no transplants. The, the disease very often caused him to have off days during his racing career. Uh, a lot of people have said that it might have been that that actually caused him to retire at the top of his career rather than go on a bit longer. But the other side of it is that, A, it was deemed to be terminal. Um, and so he didn't tell anybody about it. And the other thing is that he couldn't let it be publicly known because he would probably risk losing his driving license and his racing permit. That's interesting, really. Particularly when you say about this, you know, he's growing up with that going on, but also you said about you know, the Spitfire pilot, he'd have been that impressionable young lad seeing all this in the newspapers and on the radio every day. You can almost understand how he grew up to be a bit of a lad, to use a phrase. <laughs> yes, a bit of a lad, I think, is is what, what he very much was. And he, you know, and any racing driver has to have that competitive spirit. And that's, that probably explains why virtually every trip from his home in Farnham in Surrey to anywhere always ended up as a race because every Jack the Lad knew who he was um, and they would want to blow off a Grand Prix driver. But Mike was rarely the model of self-restraint, shall we say, um, and that he uh, he would race anybody anywhere on public roads in whatever it was that he was driving. And over the years, he... He had a Riley Sprite, an Alfa Romeo 8C he had nice. on the road. Um, and uh, an Lancia Aurelia B20, um, which was his father's car, um, were also supplemented by you know, that useful perk that happens from time to time. Um, loan cars from Ferrari, loan cars from Jaguar, 
And one of those was the Jaguar Mark I 3.4, which uh, bore the registration number VDU881. And this is the car in which he was to lose his life. So it was obviously, you know, a huge accident. How did it actually come about? Well, this is kind of where the the mystery starts because the accident um, the accident happened and the the press picked up on that, but it wasn't really until the post mortem that they started digging into what had happened, and even then the truth didn't come out. On the morning of the twenty second of January, nineteen fifty nine. Hawthorne was chatting to his chief mechanic at the garage, um, a chap called Britt Pierce, and that he had a, an appointment in London for which he was getting to be late, as was often his way. Um, he had 40 miles to do, and he didn't have a huge amount of time to do it. Um, so he was standing on the forecourt of the business. He'd inherited that business from his father, uh, and that it had been a very successful garage business. Uh, it had evolved as he became more famous from being the tourist trophy garage to the signboard above the, the door that now said Mike Hawthorne's tourist trophy garage. Um, and that Hawthorne was standing there chatting to Britt Pierce and a grey Mercedes 300 SL slowed down on the road outside that probably would have been enough but the fact that it was Rob Walker who was the owner and entrant of all the Grand Prix cars driven by Sterling Moss um, was behind the wheel left hand drive of course he made eye contact with Mike and as was uh, as was the way amongst chums in those days <laughs> he uh, he gave him a, a large V sign and rushed off up Farnham High Street. Um, it probably goes without saying that Hawthorne finished his conversation fairly quickly, jumped into his Jaguar to make chase. Uh, and inevitably, being the reigning world champion, although Rob Walker was no mean driver on his own, he would uh, he would start catching the the Mercedes, uh, and uh, Rob said in, in that marvelous mahogany tone of voice that he had uh, that he said, "I wasn't used to a Jaguar catching me like that," uh, <laughs> which says something about how he normally drove. Isn't it? <laughs> or, or, to be honest, that group of people normally drove. Yes, yes, and they were they were immune. It didn't nothing apply, applied to them. They went from from Farnham to Guildford along a road called the Hog's Back, um, which I think you're familiar with. Um, certainly I've driven it lots of times. Um, straight, quick. It was, it was an easy, an easy run. Um, by the time they got to join the Guildford bypass, the Jaguar was ahead. Now, we talk about the Guildford Bypass, we talk about bypasses generally, we talk about trunk roads generally. But back in those days, the Guildford Bypass was a three or four lane road. Um, but 
there was no central barrier. There was no um, traffic control. I mean, the three-lane roads were horribly dangerous because everybody had the right to travel, to overtake in the middle lane. Uh, and so you've got overtakers heading head-on to each other down that central lane. The, the bit where Mike had the accident was four lanes, but still, it was just four lanes, no central reservation, no uh, nothing in the middle at all. And so he uh, he was going down there. The, the road comes down from the hog's back and joins the A3. It's a long left-hand bend with a effectively a slip road. So the, there was nothing nothing there that uh, that was going to get in the way. And then he got onto the main road. Now the the weather at that point had been horrible. It'd been raining all morning. Um, it, it probably wasn't actually raining at the time, but it was horrible and wet. And a typical January day, shall we say? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, and the next bit of that bypass was a, a very quick right-hand. Bend. I mean, it's it. This was a a trunk road, so there weren't any tight turns in it. But nonetheless, it was a bend, and that Walker could only have watched in horror as the Jaguar stepped out, the, the tail of the Jaguar stepped out, and that you know, it began a classic high-speed spin as the rear wheels lost traction and the car swapped ends. Uh, it it crossed the carriageway backwards. It just clipped the back of a of a Bedford van, which was heading in the other other direction of course. Um and then it crossed the grass verge the other side of the road and hit a tree. Um ironically it was the only tree for miles. But he hit the tree and the car just folded in half around it. Um, the damage to the car was catastrophic. The impact between the front and rear doors on the passenger side, the left-hand side. And, of course, this was long before seat belts were worn on road cars. For that matter, it was long before seat belts were worn on race cars. Yes. Um, and Hawthorne was thrown around inside the car and that his his body was actually found on the back seat of the car. Um, immediately, I mean, obviously, Rob Walker stopped, um, as did lots of other people. First person on the scene going the other way, really ironically, was Duncan Hamilton. And that it was he who opened the door to see Mike in the back seat. Um it kind of started, people started talking about the fact that maybe Walker and Hawthorne had been racing. Um, Walker was always adamant that he just happened to be on that same piece of road at the same time um, and gave evidence to Mike Hawthorne's post-mortem um, and... Um, to anybody else who was going to ask that that was the case. And it was years later, decades later, that he actually told the truth that they had been I, th- I think 
in the situation he was in and to coin a phrase from a a British scandal from a few years later, well, he would, wouldn't he? (laughs) Yes, yes. I I think um, there was nothing to be gained. Um, But clearly the press went into overdrive about just why the hugely experienced Hawthorne had lost control. The Jaguar was, by all accounts, far from standard. Um, It was owned by Jaguar Cars, and it had been modified at various times during its life. In fact, he raced that very car at Silverstone in 1958. Um, Famous battle with Tommy Sopwith in a a very similar car as as a support race. And um, it is known that that car disappeared, in inverted commas, from the Tourist Trophy garage for two weeks prior to that race, where it is assumed it was taken to the Jaguar Competitions Department to uh, to be breathed upon, shall we say. So, so that was essentially a car that Hawthorne was very, very close to driving right on the limited. Yes. You know, and yes. something he did, you know, he'd done before and had done frequently. Well, the, I think the other thing is that there is some evidence to support that Hawthorne himself had the car modified as well. Um, and that quite possibly, you know, that there were other things that had happened to the car before that. As you can imagine, the accident was huge news. This was a reigning world champion, a Britain's first world champion. He had been a huge star now for really two or three years and was was much loved. And this is how British Movie Tone News reported it. The first possibility for the cause of the accident would have to be human error. Whilst we perhaps all like to think that our heroes are invincible, even the very best do sometimes make mistakes. And wet road, strong, gusty winds may have caught Mike off guard. In addition, though, VDU881 was shod with, um, and this will come as a surprise, I think, to many people, Dunlop's new radial tyre, very, very much in their infancy. And Mike would have been used to the crossfly tyre, which, amongst other things, broke away very much more slowly. You could slide a car on a crossfly in a way that you certainly couldn't um, in with a, with a radial. And that, therefore, perhaps he was he was caught out by that. And all those pictures that you see of cars in four wheel drifts um, from Maserati 250Fs and van walls through to T-type Jaguars, that they were all on cross flies and that that maybe caught him out. There was talk that he'd have a hand throttle fitted, which uh, I think is, is possible, the sort of early day cruise control. Uh, but there was no no evidence of that when they uh, when they looked at the car after the accident, um, and the thought of Mike using a hand throttle whilst dicing on the Guildford bypass is a bit far fetched. No he's, he's, he's a racing driver; he'd been trying to balance the car on the throttle while cornering, etc., wouldn't he? And that would be the foot throttle how he's used to doing it. 
Yeah, and and I think it would be instinctive, whereas perhaps you know it, it would it would not have been working with try, trying to drive it on cruise control as as we would understand it now. The third possibility, though, is something to do with Mike's health. That we knew that his kidney disease was causing him problems. He had had blackouts, although never when driving, as far as we know. But they were getting worse. He was getting more and more ill. And one of the possibilities, which we could never prove or disprove, is that he had actually suffered a blackout whilst driving. Um, and that just adds to the mystery of of what was happening there. Um, I mean, Mike's, Mike's attitude to life, I think, was changing very considerably because he knew that he didn't have long left and that he would... He would sooner or later succumb to the the kidney disease. Um, Nobody knew that. I don't think anybody knew that. But it is a possibility that he blacked out. Um, We'll never know any of the answers. All we do know is that Mike Hawthorne died on the 22nd of January at midday. And that, stunningly, he was 29 years old. He, uh, He no doubt would have evolved from... Jack the Lad of 1959, and uh, perhaps we'd be seeing him at the Goodwood Revival. I think if he was at the Revival, you wouldn't stand next to him in the beer tent. <laughs> now, uh, one of the uh, one of the high spots from our our last Historic Racing News radio show was our chat with Jim Roller about his early days at Watkins Glen and. Jim is now going to do the second part of that story. So, uh, welcome, Jim. You uh, you told us last time about some of the things that went on, how you grew up right near to Watkins Glen Racetrack, and that must have been quite something. Oh, it was. It fashioned exactly kind of who I became and how I lived my life, because when I became of age, I wanted to see the world. Uh, And the reason I wanted to see the world is because as a youngster going to the racetrack for world endurance championship races and formula one races, I had gotten to be, uh, to rub elbows or be exposed, however you want to put it with people from all over the world. And I was fascinated by that. And it really influenced a lot of the decisions I made as to what career path I wanted to follow and that sort of sort of thing. So, yeah, to say that the racetrack helped shape my life would uh, not be an understatement in in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Well, it's it's a great way to start, I have to say, that with uh, with a racetrack on your doorstep. But you uh, you did that. But. Now you're going to tell us a bit more about some of the uh, some of the tales behind the scenes. Well, yes, growing up there, obviously there were a lot of rumors and a lot of things that that you heard. You have to understand that a lot of this is based on the backdrop that Watkins Glen is a very small community of about three thousand people. It's a bit of a resort community, especially now. Uh, in the in the turn of the century, it has reshaped itself as a very nice resort community in in upstate New York, uh, in the Finger Lakes region. It sits at the tip of the largest of the Finger Lakes, Seneca Lake. 
And in the 30s, it became the kind of vacation spot of choice for the New York City mob. So, (laughs) yes, so there's there's a little bit of kind of a, a mob undertow in in some of the rumors and some of the things that that used to that used to take place. And I think one of the things that is one of the biggest drag, you know how in the days of Nixon and everything, they said, follow the money. Yeah. Well, that, that holds very true in Watkins Glen because money ended up being a driver of many things that happened. We spoke last time about how they, they raced in the streets. And then in 1953, they moved up on the hill to the 7.2 mile Brigham Young course in 1956. They built the 2.3-mile permanent circuit that kind of has was the foundation for the racetrack that we even have today. And the paving was completed for that first race in 1956, the night before the first race. So it was was through politics and bond referendums and that sort of thing. The the racetrack was originally built for about $150,000. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Things no. things cost one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, in shortly after that, so in nineteen sixty, uh, once it became the permanent home of the Grand Prix in the sixties, the reason it was able to become the permanent home is because it proved to be the richest Formula One race in the world. And everybody's like, oh, come on, what are you talking about? Well, in 1966, I did some research on this. And in 1966, uh, they changed from starting money to prize money at Watkins Glen. And the first purse was $102,400. $20,000 winner's purse was more than the winner's purse for all the other Formula One races combined. Okay, that's a perspective. And twenty thousand dollars in nineteen sixty six money was huge. That was that was that was a big chunk of change. Uh, In in nineteen sixty nine, the prize money more than doubled up to two hundred and six thousand dollars. And then we turned into the seventies, and that's. That's when the when the trouble started. And you have to remember this this was a cash business, so there were a lot of things that were going on in, in the town. Uh, there was always a lot of politics associated with this. You had the the um, the Watkins Glen Grand Prix Association. You had all of these different entities that that frankly had their hand in the till, for for lack of a better term. And and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but there was there were always people making money off of the race. And in 1971, there was a decision made to to reconfigure the racetrack, and that's when they 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 extended the short course, which is what we remember as the 2.3 mile, and they added the boot, and it and it became the um, uh, the 3.377 mile configuration that we still use today. And the debut race for that layout, Francois Severe won in 1971 at the U.S. Grand Prix. And his winner's purse was $50,000, which, again, back then was was huge. Yeah. But that indeed. expansion, that, that, that expansion, Paul, really, in a long-term way, 
it it proved to be the beginning of the end for the racetrack. Part part many, many things kind of kind of happened, um, and 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 they didn't know it at the time. It, you know, it was one of those things. It's like it's like when a when political figures do something and uh, ten years later their decision comes home to roost because it didn't look bad in the beginning, but then later on it was like, oh, we never thought that would happen. Well, you know, the 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 what is it? The rule of unintended consequences. Yep. So when they were doing the expansion of the racetrack in 1971, they unearthed a natural spring and that caused what was known as the bog to be created. And the bog was, was, was very, uh, would, would, would come to hold a, a very infamous place in Watkins Glen history. Um, the first couple of years, it wasn't a big deal. People just kind of hung out there. The rowdy people, it kind of became an area known for the rowdy people. They'd, they'd drive their vehicles in there. And if they got them stuck, they'd help each other pull them out. And it was a place for drinking. And in 1972, nobody, nobody even noticed what was going on there. In fact, uh, after Jackie Stewart won and claimed a prize of six, uh, $62,000, the Grand Prix Drivers Association gave Watkins Glen the the prize of being the best organized race. Now I'm sure part of that is because it, they they enriched the Formula One teams <laughs> greatly for coming there. Uh, and then 1973 was a very fateful year um, for the Glen. Um, the the bog at the race um, started to, to take on a more nefarious uh, social. Uh, undercurrent and also 73 was the year of the summer jam now the summer jam was a rock concert that still to this day is eclipsed in fame by woodstock everybody remembers woodstock in 1968 well woodstock drew 400,000 people and you know the community was affected for years it's become you know legendary the stories from woodstock yeah well in 1973, July 20th, 1973, they had the Summer Jam, which featured the Grateful Dead, the band, and the Allman Brothers. Wow. Now think think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. New York State Police estimates and pictures, 650,000 people invaded a community of 3,000. Uh, it took years and years for the lawsuits from that to to be settled. And it wasn't until much later, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute, that those lawsuits were settled. It wasn't until the racetrack actually went bankrupt and then changed hands that those lawsuits were settled. Um, Fans killed a farmer's pig. They were butchering livestock on that farmer's land. Uh, It was, it was, it was a mess. And worse yet, many, uh, a couple of the promoters skipped the country and went to Brazil with the money. Oh, it's that bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was that bad. So combine that with then in 1973 in October, the death of Francois Severe, and a, and a dark cloud <laughs> kind of came and sat <laughs> on the racetrack. And it, it, it never really recovered from 1973. In 1974, 
the bog reached its its zenith of of trouble uh a bus that this was when emerson fittipaldi was first coming into his his fame uh, and i think it may have been actually his first world championships i'm sure one of our our fans will correct me on that if i'm if i'm wrong but there was a greyhound bus a big uh, transit bus that the bogites got into drove it into the bog and burned it now one of those buses carries about 100 people and on the bus was the luggage and passports and everything else from the fans who had come to see Emerson race and actually got a paddock tour from Emerson and were taken to their seats by Emerson before the race. And then all of their personal belongings were burned. That combined with the death of Helmut Koenig that year at the end of the back straightaway. So it's two straight years of driver death, the bog burning, the, the, the sponsors and the, and the formula one people were in, went went insane. I mean, and you and you can't blame them. It was it was horrendous. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that just it it was, and there was a they really started to lose uh, a lot of support of the community, and they really really started to have trouble. In 1975, they added the Schecter Chicane, which was you know in the in the seventy the late seventies from seventy five to eighty is when the drivers and Bernie and everybody were starting to assert control and try to wrest things away from, from FISA. And, and the Glenn got caught up in that, in, in that, that they, they, because of the, the deaths of Severe at the top of the S's and the, and the debt, and then the following year, the death of Koenig at the end of the back straightaway, which is, you know, the speed you carry out of the S's means a, a higher terminal velocity at the end of the straightaway. They wanted to slow them down going up through the S's. So they, they literally just put two big clumps of curb in and basically denuded the racetrack. And that was known as the Schecter chicane. And that stayed there until again, the racetrack changed hands. By, by time I was a senior in high school, 1977, things had really started to racetrack was really struggling. And then there was a mysterious fire. Oh, no. Yes. Yes, there was. June 2nd of 1977, uh, the Glen National Bank, which was, it was actually on the corner of the, basically the center of town, the intersection at the center of town. And it would have been on driver's right on the old racetrack, on the old through the streets racetrack. Oh, right. Okay. Well, in 1977, the that bank had a fire. And the fire was on the second floor. So the bank itself was undamaged, but the second floor was a total loss. And you'll never guess what was on the second floor. (laughs) Go on. All of the financial information, the archives, this is the sad part, all the photos and films and everything else, all the archives from the Watkins Glen Grand Prix Association. So was it it part of the bank that caught fire or was it... uh the association that caught fire well it was it was the it was the bank building that caught fire but what burned was all the association offices right Right. so all of the that data uh and all of those financials were were destroyed so there was nothing that anybody from a legal standpoint could do 
to if there had been any sort of fraud or anything like that, it, there's no way they could they could prove it. And if you research the Glen National Bank fire, the only thing you can find, unless you really, really dig deep, is, a, is an article in the New York Times, believe it or not, that, the, uh, that there had been a fire at this little bank in upstate New York. Now, why would the New York Times report on a little fire in a bank in upstate New York, you might ask yourself. Yep. So that just kind of gives you some sort of a... Of a of, a, of an idea. Then by, by 79, they were, they were really in trouble. Um, the 1980 race um, was on the verge of collapse and was uh, they, the, they were going to cancel the race. FISA at the time was very displeased with what was going on with the racetrack. And it was only a loan from Ecclestone of $750,000 that allowed the race to go forward. Again, at this point, they were demanding more safety. Um, they wanted, you know, uh, the catch fencing and, th- you know, the wire catch fencing, things of that nature, that frankly, the, the Grand Prix Corporation, because of everything, you know, the fa- the last seven years of losing money, just couldn't do. Then in 1981, the, the, the final nail was put in the coffin by Ecclestone himself when he demanded prize money be over a million dollars. And that was just something that the Grand Prix Corporation couldn't couldn't absorb. And I'll never forget um, at the time I was I was in college in Ithaca and I'll never forget the press conferences and that sort of thing. And Mel Curry was the was the the man in charge. You know, we talked about Cameron Argensinger and uh, Tony, uh, Tony Valent, who was one of the. Uh, he, he was one of the attorney, attorneys that was was closely involved. Well, Mel Mel was really the face of the organization, right? And Mel was a huge race fan, huge race fan, and it broke his heart. I mean, um, he never recovered. I mean, he, he he that that was the worst day of that man's life was when he had to announce that that they wouldn't be holding a Formula One race and that we were taken off the calendar. And then by August of that year. Uh, Chapter 11 was filed and the racetrack basically sat fallow. It, it had some club racing, some uh, sports car club of America races in 82 and 83. And then uh, executives from Corning glass in Corning, New York uh, became interested in the racetrack itself. Bill France had actually looked to purchase the racetrack the year earlier, but he was distracted because Darlington raceway, the home of the Southern 500 um, and really one of the crown jewels of the NASCAR circuit at the time uh, became available. So they put their money into that instead. And then a year later, France helped the Corning folks to put together uh, a bid to purchase the racetrack from receivership. And in 1984, it was relaunched with the, uh, twin three-hour IMSA races as the first pro event. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, sh- uh, for a while, the Corning folks ran the Speedway, and eventually uh, the folks in Daytona, International Speedway Corporation, took over the the running of the racetrack and uh, took over ownership of the track, and that's the way it sits today. That is That's amazing because quite clearly – it's struggled from 
from point to point over the over the years. What's what's it like now, Jim? Well, it's 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 more of an industrial complex, and I don't mean to demean our folks in Daytona, um, but it had to be done that way. I mean, in fairness to them, as I, as I say that, and then I have to say, you know, they, they've made it into an industrial place. Uh, there were public roads that went through there that would have to be closed down uh, for the races. So they had to, they had to work with the city to, to get those roads permanently closed and rerouted and that sort of stuff. And the fencing and, and some of that stuff that, that has gone in over the years, it, it, it's much like you've been to Daytona. You know what that fencing is like. Well, it's exactly yeah. the same at Watkins Glen now. And it's kind of lost some of that, uh, some of that uh, friendly appeal, but it's certainly understandable. I have, I have no, um, uh, no issues with it. The racetrack itself is in great shape. The racetrack is uh, uh, hosts many great events. Um and it is still a thriving, important part of the, the community, not only for the Finger Lakes region, but for the state of New York itself. Sure. So I, I applaud the folks at Daytona for what they've done. Uh, and while it maybe not is, isn't any more the prettiest racetrack in the United States, it certainly is the most historic racetrack in the United States, you know, road race, natural road racing circuit in the United States. But when you, when you say that, I don't think there are many racetracks in the world now that haven't suffered is the right word that blight of having to become more commercial and that if you look at you know the track which is probably closest to your heart and mine Le Mans that um, when I first went there in the 70s it was a very different place from the way it is now and the the fact that it's got a shopping mall down the down through the middle of it pretty much um, you know these these things have to adapt to survive don't they Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I can remember my first trip to Le Mans in the late 80s. You still uh, went ahead and re- relieved yourself on the back wall of the uh, pit boxes. <laughs> They've come a long way. <laughs> yeah, and they, they caught you out of jail fairly quickly, didn't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Jim Roller, and, uh, and thank you for talking about what was your home racetrack for for many years now you're going to be back again uh next month to talk about something else that's very close to your heart yes we're going to very soon we're going to get a round table together of the folks who were there and we're going to talk about that time from 1999 to 2013 when the american le mans series was so prominent in American road racing. I can't wait. We're going to get some old friends together uh, and have some fun talking about the days of bombing around the entire world, actually, from Australia to Germany to all the circuits in the United States and Canada as part of the American Le Mans series. It was great times. Can't wait. Can't wait. Thank you, Jim. Well, that's it for this month's Historic Racing News radio show. Thanks to Jim Roller for his views on Watkins Glen. Uh, thank you to Paul Jurd for all your latest news i hope that you'll be bringing some more stuff to us next month bob i certainly will paul yes it's uh, things are changing quite quickly at the moment so we might have uh, updates on what we've already been told today but uh yeah we'll be already compiling what we're going to be putting together so until then if you have been thanks for listening and from me paul tarsi and me paul judd 
It's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from him. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.